I'm going to sound like an infomercial here for a moment. Maybe you're finding that you are all out of arguments to have around the holiday dinner table at this time of the year with Thanksgiving now past. Maybe you are looking for more areas of disagreement with distant relatives who you wish were more distant relatives. If so, I have for you an argument tailor-made for this area. It is, baseball fan or not, that Pete Rose, the all-time hit leader in Major League Baseball, is at best, at best, a borderline Hall of Famer. (sighs) It's true. He is not one of the all-time greats. Does not belong in the company of Ted Williams, Aaron, Mays, Mantle, Ruth, Gehrig. Not at all, my friends. I know this is heresy. Heresy to some of you. I uh, offered up this, I would say opinion, but I'm going to get to the facts in a second. I offered up my perspective on Facebook not too long ago about the fact that Pete Rose is not one of the all-time greats. And boy, did I get walloped. People were angry and mean and mocking. And, and they said things about me that were not true, such as, such as you trust math more than you trust your eyes or your own heart and common sense, which if you know me, the idea that I would trust math over anything, that's not me. Pete Rose is not one of the all-time greats. Moving beyond like the top line, most obvious thing, like all-time hits. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but like lifetime batting average, 303. Batting average is kind of like, uh, if you really want to understand the nature of baseball, it's kind of like if you want to understand the nature of molecular biology and you use a magnifying glass and not a microscope. Batting average in, doesn't tell us all that much. So let's go with something else that some of you may know. If you're not aware of it, don't worry about it. Explain it to you after the service. If you're really that curious, you'll probably forget about it immediately. OPS. On base plus slugging. That is a much more important, important metric when it comes to predicting the amount of runs that someone participates in. And remember, the point of baseball is to score more runs than the other team. So OPS, career, lifetime OPS, on base plus slugging. Pete Rose is not in the top 100. He is not in the top 200. He is not in the top 300. He is not in the top 400. He is not in the top 500 of all time, my friends. This is not an all-time great. Yes, he is the greatest at over a long period of time, accumulating a lot of hits, the majority of them singles. Calling him the greatest of all time is kind of like calling McDonald's the best at cooking. Because they have served the most hamburgers over the most decades. It is exactly like that, I tell you. There's someone who's informed. You can argue with me later. (laughs) Oh, you ought to know. You're a math person. You ought to know better. People just know it. He's one of the all-time greats. Because I think of the nickname, not just the hits, Charlie Hustle. He did play the game hard, and he was a really good player, don't get me wrong. 
Charlie Hustle, that head, that iconic head first dive. Reminded me that recently I read uh, a little document, a little thing online. I think it was an entrepreneurial blog somewhere. I can't remember exactly where it was. It was in praise of a writer who was talking about having a hustler's mentality. Now, part of it was fine. It was basically praising hard work, being driven, having drive, good stuff. But then the person talking about the hustler's mentality got to this part. He said, in my hustler's mentality, I don't let anyone slow me down. I don't have a second, don't have a second to spare to catch up with the people around me. I hustle every second of every day in pursuit of my dream. Now, if you've been around for a while, you might know that I'm in recovery. Um, I'm also in recovery from this kind of hustler's mentality. I know what it's like here, not recently, but a few years ago, to work between 65 and 70 hours a week. I know what it's like to miss things because I am hustling and hustling and hustling as much as I believe in hard work. I think a hustler's mentality is really damaging. No time to slow down. No time to notice what's not in the plan. And right, folks, most of life is not in the plan. Most of life is outside the plan, if we're really going to meet life for what it is. Finally, there's no space for grace in a hustler's mentality. And whether people, whether you feel successful or not, one of the things I hear from folks, and we also read the statistics about it as well, is that more people are feeling tired, worked out, overworked, less room to notice, Small room to care. A hustler's mentality crowds life out. And let's also not forget there's another meaning to hustler. Prostitution. Pornography. At its best, objectification of other people. At its worst, exploitation of ourselves or other people's bodies. And then a third meaning to hustler. To being hustled. Being lied to. That what we thought was going to work out and maybe bring us some rewards doesn't. Doesn't fulfill us and just leaves us feeling perhaps embittered. So maybe you've seen this other data point that's come out recently. There's nothing else like it in the industrialized world. This is specific to America and to a group of Americans. There has been a recent an unexpected rise in the death rates, statistically significant, of midlife white Americans. And it's not as if cancer rates are going up in this group. It's addiction. Alcoholism. It's cirrhosis of the liver. It's suicide. Chronic pain reports in this group is also way up. Disability claims also weigh up. And just to add to this unpretty picture, in areas just like this, suburban Chester County, there is an epidemic of heroin use. Those are the stats. What the stats can't tell you what it was like for me to do the funeral of a 21-year-old five years ago who died of a heroin overdose. All this stuff is true and happening. So I like to keep those numbers in mind when I pay attention to something else that is happening. Something that a lot of us have paid attention to this past week especially. 
and it is a largely white Anglo phenomenon directed at people of color, very often foreign, very often not Christian. This is more than just Donald Trump, although he is the most egregious and vile example of it. It takes the expression of what's saying, let's close our borders, bar all the refugees, and in something that ought to send a chill down every one of our spines. Even putting forward the idea that we will start to identify people and require identification for people according to their religious identity. There is a rise in both violence of word and indeed a whole bunch of mosques have been attacked all across this nation the last few weeks. So often is targeted at people of Islamic faith. You know, just a few months ago we were hearing about, you know, it wasn't Muslims, it was Mexicans that were the the fault, the problem of our problems. Thing is, you know, there's been terrorism before. And for decades, undocumented workers have been in this country. Why so much anger, rage now? I think it is directly tied to those statistics about white death much more early than I talked about before. Even, yes, after this recession is technically over, there's still so much insecurity for people. There's still so much worry. There's still so much debt. There's still so much pain. And many people who have been insulated from feeling this pain, the pain a lot of other people with skin not like me, gender not like me, sexual orientation not like me, have felt for a long time in this country. Here's something that obviously, from my perspective, from so many of our perspectives, needs to happen. The seams of white supremacy are coming apart at the seams. And they're showing. And it's starting to burst. And at the same time, the end holds a world of hurt. And the world of this hurt is getting expressed as blame, as scapegoating, as demonization, as fear of people who are considered to be other. So today I'm not talking about, you know, the coming, ongoing, open-ended battle with ISIS and terrorism. That's going to go on one way or the other. It's going to be fought. I hope it's going to be fought intelligently. What I want to talk about is us. Our hearts. In the midst of this traumatizing, violent last month that doesn't really show any signs of letting up, who will we become? More importantly, how do we remain strong without adding to the harm of the world? Now, when I find myself uncertain, when I find myself, my heart overcome by fear, not knowing how to respond exactly, I find that I take strength from stories that are very important to me. Perhaps you do as well. And so I want to share two stories that are important to me for kind of different yet related reasons because they're very different kind of stories. Uh, it's this. You've been around for a while. You know that, yes, even five years after loss is over, I will not shut up about it. Sorry. <laughs> and the other is The Leftovers. There's a common writer, a showrunner between these two stories. And... I think both of them are responses, I'm not the only one to read it this way, to September 11th, to the trauma 
visited upon this country that I think we're still trying to make some sense of in a meaningful way. I think we're trying to make nonsense of it in all kinds of ways. But both of these stories start with a sudden, unexpected trauma. In Lost, it's a plane crash where all the people there you see wind up on this mysterious, magical island. And the leftovers, it's this. There's about a hundred or so people in and around the building today. In the leftovers, two of you will vanish immediately without warning and without explanation. That's what happens in the leftovers. Two percent of the world's population just vanishes. And the focus of the rest of the story are on the people who are left over. Both these stories are about sudden loss, sudden grief, sudden trauma. Both these stories are about and have action and adventure. Both these stories bring together people from different backgrounds. Both these stories are about fear and love. But this is where the stories depart. Lost is a redemption story. It is a fervent hope that in the midst of our difficulty, our despair, we will come together and heal with each other. And that's why these pictures are intentionally chosen. Lost, the people are together. But in the leftovers, we see a solitary person. To the extent people come together in the story of the leftovers, it's only to demonize and make other people suspect. People are coming apart at the seams in the leftovers in the wake of trauma. Sometimes they seek private peace, but it never proves to be sustainable. It just ends up with more pain. The world eventually encroaches upon them, and they can't handle it. Sadly, I think right now, the story of the leftovers is more as fantastical as it is, more our story of where we as a culture find ourselves. And so I think the key question is, whatever our backgrounds, our races, whatever our experience, at this moment, do we allow our uncertainty, our fear, our loss to open us to the pain of other people? Or do we shut that down? The stats that I talked about, they're about people out here in the burbs. Where, you know, there's a lot of language about safety and security and about the things can be okay. But these tides are encroaching. And eventually they involve us all, even here. And so maybe there's a, a hope that we can build an impenetrable fortress that will keep all the floodwaters out. Or do we make the choice to wade into the water of the pain the dis-ease, the uncertainty. I have to tell you, in 17 and a half years of being a Unitarian Universalist pastor, uh, it was good news. Um, I can't say some of my colleagues may feel this way. I still don't believe in original sin. It's not a doctrine in our tradition. I still don't believe in it. But I've come to believe something else with all of my heart. I believe in original woundedness. I believe in original vulnerability that is inescapable because I have heard so often over the years trauma is so ubiquitous some kind of trauma addiction 
Sometimes it's wounds from wars fought long ago that parents still can't talk about. It may be mental illness. It may be the deaths you don't talk about because society doesn't give you a chance to talk about them. It may be the miscarriages that we're just told to move on from. It may be the long-held, poorly-held secrets of abuse that are passed on from generation to generation. Trauma is so ubiquitous. And maybe you're thinking, well, not my family. I might tell you to look harder. But even if you're saying, not my family, it's in your friends' families, your coworkers' families. It's in the families that your child or your children will marry into someday. This trauma is here, waiting for us to see it, to acknowledge it. This, my friends, is how love begins to win. Even in times of pain, doubt, uncertainty, and fear. Because we know that no one is inoculated against this original woundedness or vulnerability. Here's a little bit of good news, and something doesn't feel like good news at all. If we can open to that original woundedness, we will in fact be able to hold that original woundedness by something that's even more original. Original blessing. The grace that comes that we are all in this together. By knowing this. And not turning away from the reality of each other's lives or our lives any longer. We can begin to help love win by overcoming denial. One of my favorite authors is Kathleen Norris, who's a Catholic contemplative who is very sharp-tongued and sharp-witted. And she wrote about something in a small essay a number of years ago about the song Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And what she was noticing is that more and more hymnals were taking out that word wretch and saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. Ah, so much nicer. And she says, this is BS. Who doesn't feel wretched sometimes? She says, who's home in this theology of wanting to make everything clean and tidy and not wanting to face our wretchedness? She says, sometimes we feel wretched and so it's good to come together and cry together and mourn together and grieve together and learn to love one another in this space. Because if we don't do this, if we don't turn to that original woundedness and honor it, we will end up turning to other less healthy means. I've seen it over and over again in people's lives. This is where to recognize the connection between the word addiction and dictator. They share the same root. (laughs) In our individual addictions, we will turn to work, to sex, to drugs, to food, to alcohol, to the small dictators of all these things, hoping that they can save us from feeling the uncertainty of what it is to be alive when in fact all they end up doing is just imprisoning us more in our large societal addictions we turn to leaders to doctrines to dogmas who falsely promise absolute safety that we're unique among the world and we don't have to feel any pain and we can rise above it all and we can be untouched by the tides of human history and we'll be great again sometime whenever again was because it really didn't exist we're imagining it but these things end up destroying other people's lives as they lie to us. This is why 
this work primarily of inviting love to win in times of despair or dis-ease, it is not primarily work for politicians. This is our work. This is our work together. This is the work of spiritually maturing and deepening people who are willing to ask the question, this is how love begins to win again. This is how we give love power. Willing to ask what's underneath all the hate and the rage and the anger and the fear. What's underneath there? We have to be willing to listen to people like the prophet. And I use that word intentionally, James Baldwin, who was born into an America that was an apartheid state, who was willing to ask with such generosity of spirit and of heart. I imagine that one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. That is how we invite love to win. We look more deeply than the explosive things to the holy and hidden and very often hurting heart that many of us have. We're willing to recognize the, the wisdom of what Jesus said in a non-canonical, a non-biblical gospel. Still, probably my favorite words that he spoke in the gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. See, we tamp down the pain, we tamp down the fear, and we tamp down the original woundedness. It will destroy us. The truth will out. And by the way, one of the things I love about that uh, quote when I first heard it like 25 years ago, I thought that was individual. Now I take that you as plural. It's in all of us. If we do this together, to allow our traumas to be seen. If we do that, we can recognize that very often, you know, sometimes we hear about healing and we think, okay, I'm healed, I'm healing, I don't hurt anymore. No. (laughs) The greatest healers I know are people who recognize that hurt is still part of their lives and they can feel it. What they do is they take that healing path and they vow to no longer harm themselves or other people this is one of the reasons that i am so deeply proud and privileged in the best way to be a part of our recovery ministry here at wellsprings this is a way of responding deeply to those statistics i used earlier in the message it's here this is not to scare any of us but this could be any one of our kids this could be any one of us It is to recognize that some things, one of the narratives around here, maybe some of you saw on Slate, I think it was originally, it goes by the title of this, it's here on social media a lot, when your child is an addict, no one brings a casserole. Remember that? Oh, because the fear is if I get too close, it's catching. (laughs) I'll catch it too. It might invade our household. The good, blessed, holy work of our addictions and recovery ministry and of many of our ministries here is that really at the ultimate level it's not about destigmatizing addiction it's about destigmatizing our basic vulnerable fragile selves and that's all of us this is how love wins in times of despair fear and disease the phrase love wins i think a lot of you perhaps are familiar with it where it originates, it originates uh, from the minister Rob Bell, 
who, uh, when he wrote it, was at one point kind of considered a progressive evangelical. I think he's just considered a progressive Christian now. And that book, Love Wins, is a universalist vision of a love that ultimately involves everyone and all of creation. And the story that he tells in the book about where this urge to proclaim love wins comes from is from um, something that happened in his church when he was serving in Michigan. He was doing a series on peacemakers. He invited people to do uh, art projects in response. By the way, we should do that sometime. All right, put that in idea for later. Um, and someone painted a picture of, of Gandhi. And then someone in his church felt moved to affix a little uh, yellow sticky on the bottom of that picture of Gandhi saying, you do realize Gandhi's in hell, don't you? Yeah, that's what Rob Bell's response was. He says, is this my God? Is this my gospel? Is this my Jesus? Is this what I believe? Is this what I'm leading people to? No. And yeah, Rob Bell and I have different traditions that we come from. I was born Jewish. I'm a Unitarian Universalist. I draw primarily from Buddhism for my own spiritual practice and spiritual growth and nurturance. I am a Jew, boo, you, you. Yes, there is such a thing. <laughs> but where, where Rob Bell and I absolutely meet, and I think this is bigger than any belief, is on the common ground of trust in the healing and gracious power of a truly limitless love. Universalism says there is a love so special we do not need to be special to be loved. That is a belief that I believe in. Belongs to no doctrine, belongs to all of us. But here's the thing, it's also incomplete. Because there's a question in that belief. There is an ethical invitation. And it goes like this. A response we can make. Boundaries are important and essential and necessary. And the ultimate meaning of universalism is that we are to cross borders, not close them. Cross the borders that keep us away from the stranger. Cross the borders that keep us away from the refugee. Cross the borders that keep us away from our neighbors, especially the ones we disagree with. Cross the borders that keep us away from ourselves. Cross the borders that estrange ourselves from our own hearts. Limited love cannot win. It is not up to the task. Love that just belongs to one group or another. Only limitless love can help guide us in this time. Because it does not hustle. It has enough time. It believes in something bigger than the plan. It does not overlook. And it does not deny. Limitless love includes us all. Every single one of us. No exceptions. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Love, more real, more powerful than any belief. Love beyond belief. Love that would welcome us in and welcome us home to each other 
except in fact the welcome isn't waiting for us, it's already been offered. This is the welcome of recognizing, honoring, tending to and caring for all the wounds we carry and recognizing that what we do with the wound is what matters. Do we wound others? Do we wound ourselves? Or do we accept this invitation to healing and allowing the love and the light to move through and into our wounds? Amen.